Um, if we haven't met, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and truly are honored that you're here with us this morning. And if you're just coming in, just so you know, uh, this is week four of a series that we've been in, and we are basically kind of pulling back the curtain and looking at the values that really shape us as a community, the kinds of things that we want desperately to shape uh, each one of us as individuals and, and that propel us forward, but also the things that shape us uh, as a church, the kind of community of faith uh, that we are wanting to be and working to be. And so this morning, um, continuing in that series, this is week four, next week's the last week, um, we are come to what is probably our most misunderstood core value. And, uh, and it's this. Uh, relevance to culture is not optional. Relevance to culture is not, not optional. Uh, when I started in ministry, you know, like 13-ish years ago, relevant to be relevant was like probably the buzzword in like Christendom. Everybody was trying to be relevant. We had relevant magazines and relevant websites and relevant churches and relevant resources. And everybody was trying really, really hard to be relevant. But somewhere along the way, we got a little bit confused about what the word means. And it's somewhere along the way, we started associating relevance with being cool. And when Christians try to be cool, it doesn't always go really well, you know, <laughs> which that video like illustrates so well, you know. Uh, in fact, I don't know if there's anything worse than somebody who's trying a little too hard to be cool. And, and if I'm really honest, I kind of got sucked into that whole thing. And, and I can just remember us doing some ridiculous things. And so I remember one Sunday in particular being at a church here in Lincoln. And the pastor decided to start his part of this, the sermon that he was going to repel from the rafters. And so I was the one that literally, like, lowered him from the ceiling. You know, and, like, there's nothing sinful <laughs> about that that I'm aware of in the Bible. But, but it is a little ridiculous, you know, right? I mean, like, the hype stuff, you know, the, the, the trying to be hip, cool, trendy thing, like, it just so often misses the mark. And, it, and it's such a shallow goal. And, and so for us, as we talk about the word, this core value, relevance to culture is not optional, what you've got to know is what that does not mean is being cool. Um, I think sometimes we read that and, and we just assume again, like, oh, that's the hip church then, the cool church, trendy church. And that's not our goal. Uh, that's a pretty pathetic goal. And, and so to get us past this word relevance, I actually want to suggest a different word this morning that we look at. Um, it's a, I think it's a fuller word, uh, a truer word that more truly gets at the essence of what we're talking about this morning. And that word is Incarnation. Oh, I lost my place. I can spell, I promise. Incarnation. It's a big word. Play that one in Scrabble, you'll be doing real well. Um, incarnation. So what we're getting at when we talk about incarnation is, is Jesus. In fact, one of the most profound truths, profound implications, um, the thing that is kind of the hinge point as far as our faith is concerned is found in John uh, chapter 1, verse 14. It says this. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Right? I love the way the message puts it. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And you've got to know, if you're a guest here, we make a really big deal about Jesus. Uh, he's, he is a big deal to us. He is, Jesus is the bullseye. Everything that we seek to do as a people and as a church should be, and we strive for it to be shaped by Jesus. Right? And when we talk about Jesus, I think sometimes in the Christian faith, we miss we miss some important things, and we, we reduce Jesus' life really to something that's much smaller uh, than, than it actually is. And so I'll give you an example of what I mean. 
just kind of brief 10,000-foot view, this, just think about the way that we tend to talk about, like, the gospel, right? The story of God uh, in the Bible. What ends up happening is, right, we, we start with creation, right? And if you're new to church, this is, this is free, all right? So you start with creation, right? And so in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and, and He created the heavens and the earth, and everything was good, and we were God, God and man were in relationship to each other. Uh, man and, and woman were in harmony with one another. We were in right relationship with creation, and then we rebel against God, and sin basically screws everything up, right? And the, the shrapnel is felt everywhere, Right? And it breaks our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with one another. It breaks our relationship with creation. Right? And so there's this curse. Death and, and uh, suffering, all that enters into the world of sin. Right? But God in his goodness right, doesn't wanna, won't give up on his kids. Right? So he chooses a people for himself. He chooses the people of Israel and says, you know what? Right now things are broken, but it's not always going to be that way. And so through my people, I'm going to bless the world. Right, and that's basically the entire Old Testament. We watch this journey of like this, these very, very imperfect people and God relentlessly pursuing them and them relentlessly screwing up and dealing with the consequences. And, and the, the prophets are prophesying you know, about this Messiah that someday is going to come. The Messiah is coming. And then finally, right, the event that we're going to celebrate here in a couple months, we've got Christmas, right? God in the flesh, incarnation, Jesus is here. And then we say, oh yeah, and he went and he died on the cross for us. Right, to redeem us back to himself, to redeem us to God, to fix that relationship between us and God, us and each other, us and creation. Right? He died, and then he was resurrected on the third day, ascended into heaven, and someday he'll be back to make it all good. Right? And that's kind of basically the 10,000-foot view, Cliff's Notes version, right, of how we often talk about the gospel. But we're missing something. The problem is everything that fits right there. Jesus, the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry, we just kind of skip over and we go right to death and resurrection. And don't get me wrong, this is all true. And death and res- resurrection is very, very important, right? But we miss out on everything that, that Jesus' life and ministry was. We miss out on everything it has for us. Right? The implications of what Jesus said and how he lived. Right? And, and the, the, the truth there is, what, what we have to really wrestle with and realize, especially as it relates to our conversation this morning, is that Jesus didn't just come to die for us, but he also came to show us how to live. Right? And so we got to take Jesus' life very seriously because uh, there's implications for those of us who choose to follow after Jesus. Right? And so this morning what I want to do is I want to basically just look at one snapshot of Jesus' life. And, and I, I, because, you know, it's only one snapshot, but it gives us such a good picture into the kind of life that Jesus lived, right? And that was his, his, the first, his first miracle and how he began his public ministry. Uh, and if you know me, you know how much I love this story. And so we're returning to it uh, for the first time in a couple of years, I think. But John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, right? This is, this is, Jesus is just a few days into his public ministry. He's calling disciples to himself, and this is going to be his inaugural divine act, and it's amazing. This is what we find in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples uh, had also been invited to the wedding. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. Uh, and did I just repeat myself? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, sorry about that. I wonder if I did that first service. I didn't catch that. All right. When the wine was gone, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And to understand the gravity of this moment, we've got to understand the cultural context of what's happening here. 
you got to understand, in that time and day, if you had a daughter, on the day of her birth, her dad would go over to his vat of wine and he would draw off a barrel in preparation for her wedding day. Right? And he'd draw off the barrel, and this is kind of their bittery, tart, kind of table wine. And he would draw that off, and he would set aside that barrel uh, for the day down the road when she would get married. And he would do that every year on his birthday. He would draw out a barrel and set it aside. And then the next year, he'd draw out a barrel and set it aside until she was 15, 16, 17 years old and got married. And uh, the, celebration, the celebration would begin. Right and at the beginning of the celebration, of course, you didn't just grab the barrel that he just got done filling, you know, that just got barreled like, you know, the year before, right? That stuff, again, is bittery, tart, you know, it's kind of more watered down. You get the good stuff, right? The stuff back in the corner that's been fermenting and aging for 15 years, right? And we would crack that thing open, right? And we, you'd hand out glasses of wine and we would toast to that father and say, man, what kind of a man are you that for 16 years... You've been preparing for this day. You know, we'd, then we'd toast them and we'd drink our wine and then we'd start working our way through 16 barrels of, of wine was basically how it went down, right? And, and so and you got to understand, like, this particular wedding is happening up in Cana, which is to the north. And if you know anything about, if you don't know anything about, like, the geography in Cana, right, this, this was not, this was like a very blue-collar town, right? Not a lot of money, um, you didn't have, they weren't a very particularly sophisticated people or an educated people um, or a particularly even holy people. In fact, if you had like a son who was really interested in spiritual things and maybe he wanted to become a rabbi one day, you would ship him to relatives down south because Cana was no place uh, for that kid to be raised. So you kind of got, if you can just picture in your mind what's going on here, is you've got kind of a rough neighborhood working its way, these people, through 16 barrels of wine, all right? And so it's, it's quite a party, all right? We'll just say that. There's probably karaoke going on. There's lampshades on heads, you know, the whole thing. Uh, and they are they're going crazy. But in this moment, the celebration uh, gets, is about to get cut short uh, because this father has not prepared enough for his daughter's big day. And, and not that we would toast to him and say, what kind of a man are you that you prepared well for this day, but, but that you didn't prepare for this day well, right? It's a moment of, uh, of profound shame, social shame and embarrassment, right? And so Mary, Jesus' mother, prompted in this moment by this kind of shaming, shameful moment, prompts Jesus, right? And this is what we read. Uh, Jesus responds to her. It says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And for whatever reason, Mary just kind of looks past Jesus in this moment. It says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And look how Jesus responds in this moment. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. These are big. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's in the Bible, by the way. I love it. But you, you have saved the best until now. Right? Just, I want you to just sit on this for a moment. We are talking hundreds of years, hundreds of years from here to here, where God's people are longing 
for this Messiah. Right? They, are, they are yearning for him, waiting for him to come back and make things right. And then finally he comes and he chooses for his inaugural ministry act, his divine act, to make a stupid amount of wine for a, for a wedding shindig. All right, you should be getting maybe a little bit of a picture right, as, to, as to why the Pharisees could not stand Jesus. Right? They could not understand why he was doing what he was doing or how he was doing what he was doing because they had understood holiness to be something very, very different than Jesus apparently understood holiness. Right? To them, holiness was separation from the world. Right? It's disconnection. Right? If Jesus is a, an example of what it looks like to live incarnate in a culture amongst people, roots down, engaged, right? They were the opposite of that. They were actually living a life that we might describe as excarnate, right? They were, they were physically separated from people, right? They, they distanced themselves from people who didn't believe like they did or people who were overt, you know, sinners, right? And they worked very hard to maintain that. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and totally turns everything upside down, right? Jesus doesn't, he shows us what true holiness really looks like. And what it does not look like is disengagement. Instead of what Jesus models for us is radical engagement, And he starts his ministry off by stepping into a moment of compassion for an ordinary couple on a rather ordinary day, right? A couple that are apparently so ordinary, we're not even given their names. And this is how he begins his ministry, right? And I don't know if you caught just how much wine he made, but just in case you you missed it, right, this is, I mean, this is a lot of wine, right? We're told there are six of these big vats that hold up to 30 gallons apiece, that's a, and then we're told that he filled, they filled them to the brim, right? That's, that's about 180 gallons, which is about 12 kegs of wine, or a, just under 1,000 bottles, if you want to put it that way, of beer. That's a lot, you know? Like, that is nothing short of extravagant, right? What kind of a God is this, right? And what are, what are the implications for us as a people who are called to live incarnationally in the same kinds of ways that Jesus, as Jesus did, right? It's amazing. Um, And and I think the implications are really, really profound, especially when we measure them against uh, how the Pharisees reacted. You know, the the Pharisees really, they struggled with Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. I think they didn't like a lot of things about Jesus. They didn't like his teaching on on grace, uh, that's for sure. They didn't like his theology. But I also think they just didn't like that people loved to be with Jesus. You know, they loved him. And they didn't like the Pharisees, you know? There was that separation thing, right? And they couldn't understand him because every time they saw Jesus, he had a drink in one hand and buffalo wings in the other, and he was telling jokes to prostitutes, you know? And they're like, this cannot be God, you know? But that was Jesus, right? And he begins his ministry. Again, this is just a snapshot, but it's such a good snapshot, right? Because what we find in the life of Jesus, he, he does this over and over and over again where we find him mixing it up with people that we might suggest don't belong to be in the same room. Right? He, was with, he, he had a, a, just a knack for drawing people in that probably would never walk in here on a Sunday morning. Right? When people were with Jesus, regardless of what they believed or didn't believe, they loved being with him. They felt loved. They felt embraced. And in Jesus, we find him constantly entering into their space and loving them. Right? It, it's... it's Amazing, and I think it's, it's, pretty mu- it's pretty profound, right? And, and, and I don't know if you caught where that water came from that Jesus turned into wine and what those things were, 
But we're told that those big vats were not just any container, right? They were vats that were used for ceremonial washings. They were religious mechanisms, right? So if I was a Jew and you were a Gentile, right, back then, if we interacted at all, you would contaminate me and I would have to go wash before I could come before God again and be with his people again. Right, if we did business together, again, I would be contaminated. Pretty much any time we, we interact at all, I would be contaminated, and I would have to go, and I'd have to go through these, these purifying rites and wash myself in these vats, my hands and myself, in order to be clean. Right? And Jesus takes that water, those vats right, that were symbolic, that were used, essentially they were symbols separating people. Right? They, were, they were symbols used to separate the clean from the unclean. Right, the Jews from the Gentiles, the holy from the unholy, the people who are in and the people who are out, the people who are loved by God and the people who are not loved by God. That was the idea. And Jesus uses that water to make a ridiculous amount of wine for a big party. Right? And it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I am going to start my ministry in the same way that I mean to continue my ministry. And all of this religious mumbo-jumbo that you guys have got caught up in, thinking that there are different kinds of people, people who are loved and unloved and holy and unholy, like people who belong in the room and people who don't belong in the room, and I am going to upturn all of that because now holiness is bleeding into the everyday. Right now the presence of God is available. He is here amongst his people And I'm sending them out into the world. This is how he starts his ministry. This is how he lives his life. And then at the end, right, he remember, he says, he says, to all who will follow after me, to all the disciples who will come, he says, just as the Father has sent me, right, so now I am sending you. Right, in the same way that I've entered into the world and engaged and lived connected and loved in the midst of broken cultures, I am calling you to enter in and to live rooted and to live connected, right? Not to engage in culture wars, right? Or to live completely separate, but instead to enter into all of culture to love and to serve and to redeem it, which is very, very different. It's one of the most amazing things I I, I would suggest uh, when it comes to the incarnation is watching just how incarnate Jesus was. I mean, if you don't know just how incarnate and entered in and fully in Jesus was, just think about the fact that for 30 years, God lived amongst us and nobody noticed. Not that we know. Right? And so he really, I mean, he embodied everything that it, it meant to be a man. He embodied the culture. Right? He, he, was, he was in every way uh, Jewish, and what it was like to live in that Jewish culture at that time. He was fully, fully connected. If I could pull out just like three, three different traits that we find just so boldly in Jesus is one, as I just said, he lived embodied. Right? He embodied what it meant to be human. He embodied what it meant to be a part of a larger culture. Right? He embodied what it meant to be a Jew. Right? He was a part of a particular people at a particular time. And he loved and lived and served in the midst of that culture. Um, Secondly, one of the things that we find is that Jesus is constantly engaged. Constantly engaged. Right? And he would step away and be alone with the Father, but it was always with the intent to come right back. And when other people were in the room, he was engaged. Right? He wasn't passive. He He was active. He was a part of it. 
And then, and then lastly, another one I'll pull out is that he was present. And that's one of the things that maybe amazes me the most about Jesus. Right, this person that was more than a person is that he was so present with the people around him. Right, and we even find at times like his whole plan will change because he runs into a need. Right, because when he was with people, he, he laughed with people, he wept with people, he walked with people. He, he just seemed to really love people. And some of his most profound ministry moments were, uh, were interruptions. Yeah, and then he would, because he was present in the moment, he would allow that to change, to change where he was headed. It was, it's amazing to watch. All right, but the reason, so the reason we do this, and the reason I'm drawing these out is I want to do a little bit of, of introspection, knowing what we know. Because I would suggest to you that if Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to live an incarnate life, at least culturally, right, where the waters are going and where each one of us are being pulled is what we might call uh, living an excarnate life. Right? Now, I'll, I'll let you know what I mean. So incarnate is what Jesus modeled for us. Right? Incarnate, it's living fully, being present in the moment, fully tuned in to those who we are with, connected, connected to our physical locale, culturally dialed into our city, Right, connected, very connected with those around us. It's, being, it's where we are fully present physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. We are here. That's incarnate. Excarnate is just the opposite of that. Excarnate is not being present, not tuned in to those we are with, not connected to our physical locale, not culturally dialed into our city, not connected to those around us, Not fully present physically, not fully present mentally, not fully present emotionally, not fully present spiritually. That's what we might call excarnate. And and I just want to flush this out a little bit for you and give you some examples of what I I mean by this. It used to be that even culturally when we would build homes, that we would build the porches on the front. And so Megan and I lived in a neighborhood uh, down by 7th and A., and one of my favorite things about that neighborhood is the homes all had front porches on them. And so on a beautiful evening night, we would sit on our porch, and so would many of our neighbors. And inevitably, over the course of the evening, we would end up connecting. We'd connect with each other. We'd connect with people walking by. It was just, it was like it was built for connection. We don't build homes like that anymore. Right? More, by and large, now we've put the patio space in the back. Right? Bunkered down behind the privacy fence. Right? At the end of work, you know, I think more often than not, uh, we don't go out and try to connect with neighbors. Right now, with technology being what it is and us building the way we do, right, we hit a button and the garage door goes up. We pull our car in and we hit another button. The garage door goes down and we go disappear. Right? It's excarnate. It's disconnected. It's isolated. Right? Uh, it used to be for people to talk like we actually had to be together, like in the flesh. Uh, not, so much, not so much anymore. Uh, now, more often than not, we substitute face-to-face relationships for digital ones, real friends for Facebook friends. And I don't know about you, but I don't know half my Facebook friends, you know? They're not really friends. There's people literally I don't think I've ever met, but we're friends. Right? You ever have somebody call you and you actually find yourself a little annoyed that they didn't just text? Is that just me? Have you ever had, <laughs> yeah? You know, or you have somebody uh, call you and then you don't answer the phone and then you text them back? Yeah? I think feel a little uncomfortable, right? I know, me too, right? But that's, it's disconnected, it's, it's isolated, it's, it's excarnate. You can throw up the image, right? I, I'm sure some of you saw this on Facebook. 
recently, but a photographer who's taking photos and then he removes the phones out. Photos of friends and families and loved ones. You know, I think it's just visually such an incredible image and so just symbolic and representative of where culture uh, is, is heading. Or how many times have you been out in, in public and maybe at a, like I, I'll go to a park or the mall or what have you and watch as little kids are begging for their parents' attention and mom and dad are doing that. I've been that parent. More and more. Uh, it's becoming harder to connect. It's taking more effort. And, you know, it's really interesting. Um, just as sociologists are dialing into this and starting to do a lot of research, you know, and the research is developing and ongoing, but, but they're watching, you know, technology is not a bad thing. Technology can be used for good. I'm not anti-technology. I'm using an iPad for my sermon, you know. Um, but it does have effects on our relationships. I remember going down to a networking event at the Red Nine for, like, young creatives and professionals, and I went up to the, the lounge area in the Red Nine, and literally there were three couches of 20-somethings all dressed to the hilt, ready to connect, and all of them are on their phone, sitting next, like, four inches, six inches from each other, none of them interacting. Apparently, they were connecting, networking digitally. <laughs> you know, who knows? Give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, for Christians, it used to be like being a part of a community of faith, right? You would physically be a part of a community. It would be your home where you knew people and people knew you. You would physically gather. You would physically pray for one another. You would physically break bread together. Not so much anymore, right? I mean, some of us do, and that's great. But more and more, people bounce from community to community to community, not really landing anywhere, not ever putting roots down or really investing in relationships. Even worse, you know, more and more, sometimes uh, more and more people, they will just choose to simply listen to the podcast by themselves, you know, and call that church for the week, right? It's excarnate, right? It's disconnected. It's disembodied. Right? We no longer how to be, know how to be fully present where we are. And somehow, technology being what it is, we feel like we can be everywhere. And so most of the time, we're, we're nowhere. Or, you know, America, it's, it's interesting in just the way that we talk about our jobs. America is the only country where when you ask somebody what they do, one of the standard responses is, well, currently I'm dot, dot, dot. Right? We frame it in such a way where it's like, well, I'm not staying here. I know that. You know? This is just what I'm doing until I do what I really want to be doing. Again, it's, it's excarnate. Right? We're just passing through. Right? Rather than seeing our jobs as you know, a way to serve other people and bring God glory, uh, we're just passing through. It's excarnate. Right? We have uh, more and more of us have a physical address and yet no real home. Right? We don't make things. One of these ways this fleshes itself out, too, is we don't make things with our hands anymore. Used to be that's how you did it. How do you figure out how to do something on the farm? Well, you picked up a hammer and figured it out, you know. Uh, but not anymore. Now we, 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 you know, order it off Amazon, and it's here in two days. Rather than supporting local business owners and craftsmen, we buy products made in sweatshops on the other side of the world to save a few bucks. It's excarnate. We have hundreds of Facebook friends, and yet we don't know our neighbors. We've got scores of LinkedIn contacts and Instagram followers, and yet few people that we can call in the middle of the night when we need a friend. Rather than walk six blocks, we drive. Right? Rather than drinking the marrow out of life, we are constantly rushing to and worrying about the next thing and the next thing and then the next thing. Before you know it, another decade has passed and we wonder where the time went. And I think if we were really honest, sometimes it's because we weren't there for it. We missed it. We were never really present 
anywhere. Um, cultural commentator Richard Senna, he talks about this, and he suggests that the primary architectural emblem of contemporary life is the airport departure lounge. He says, this is our world. This is what Westerners, what we have created for ourselves, is our reality is not really a reality. It's, you know, airport lounges. It's like nobody belongs there. Nobody wants to stay there. It's an isolated experience. It's a sterile experience. It's not a real experience. It's like a fake version of the real thing. It's the reason that you can eat Bubba Gump shrimp in North Dakota, right? It's like, that's not real, you know? Um, but but we, we do this, you know? And, 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 and we can bear it for a while, and to make it more bearable, like we, we hop on our phone. He says, the departure lounge is full of people who don't belong there. They don't belong where they currently find themselves and whose interactions are fleeting and trivial, Right, and I would suggest that that is, that is increasingly us if we just let culture take us where it will. Right, if Jesus modeled for us what it means to be incarnate, and that meant he fully embodied, fully engaged, fully present, I would say culturally, uh, most of the time, we're just, just the opposite. As the photo, I think, illustrates so well, increasingly, we are disembodied, and we are disengaged, and we are more or less absent. Right, just ask yourself for, for a minute, if you could ever imagine Jesus just rushing from meeting to meeting, right, always looking at his phone when somebody's talking to him, always looking over their shoulder to see if there's more, somebody more important or more interesting to talk to. You know, if you can ever imagine Jesus living this constantly just hurried, anxious pace, you know, and then at the end of the day of work, hitting the button, letting the garage door go up, pulling in, and isolating himself, right, spending most of his nights alone, perusing his Facebook feed or watching Netflix. I just don't see that. I mean, if we're going to take this whole piece really seriously, what Jesus modeled for us, which is how to be fully human, how to live fully alive, I can't see that. You know, and so if that's how we're living, we've got to ask ourselves, what, what in the world, what in the world are we doing? Jesus invites us to a better way, a very, very different, different way. See, when we talk about relevance to culture, uh, what we're not talking about is being cool. We're talking about so much more than that. What we're talking about is being connected, right? Rooting ourselves to a locale and a people, right? Rather than fighting culture wars, entering into all of culture, in order to love and serve and redeem it as Jesus did. Right? It's living a life that's embodied and engaged and present. Right? It's so much more than just being cool. And so at this point in my life, you just got to know, it's like, it's funny. I, if many of you know, I got to take a sabbatical this summer. Um, I actually had to. They pretty much made me. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, not everybody gets to do that. But one of the great things about that is you really do get to step back from your current context and the busyness and the hurriedness and just evaluate how life's going. And I have to tell you, that was a painful process. I have a lot to be thankful for, but when I looked at my life, it looked a lot more like that than that. You know, and I find myself at a point like in my, my own life and story that it's like, I just, I'm finding and I, I want more. I want more. I want to do it better. I want more of God. I want more of his gospel shaping my life and the life of my family. Like, I want to live a life that is more engaged 
in my city and in my neighborhood and in my own home. I want more. And, and, and if at any point, honestly, and Cindy and I were talking between the break, it's like if at any point I get to the point where the demands on me and my job are getting in the way of me actually being a disciple and doing ministry and living like Jesus did, I will be done with vocational ministry. That I know. You know, and so, you know, at this point, like usually from a teaching standpoint, you know, I always want to, when people walk out of the room, I always want them to know what I'm asking them to do, you know, uh, rather than this vague amorphous talking into the air, you know. It's like, well, what do we do with this? But this week I kind of wanted to turn that more on myself, and I just spent some time, this has been messing me up for a few months, and just wrestling with for my own part, and this next, if, if God gives me another 34 years to live, how I long to live more incarnate in my own life. Here's a few. I want to know my neighbors and love them well. That shouldn't be a radical thing. I want to eat around the table slowly with my family and friends, savoring the texture and flavors, the conversation and the people sitting around my table. I want to stay off my phone as much as possible. And at this point, to be honest with you, I'm thinking about getting rid of my smartphone and going back to the old flip phone. You know, Jesus uh, made a statement that just kind of has been messing me up. He said, you know, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. You know, and to me, I wonder if he wouldn't be saying, well, if your phone causes you to stumble, get rid of it and be thankful it's not your hand, you know. (laughs) I want to eat more produce grown in my own garden. It's incarnate. I want to shop local to support local craftsmen and business owners whenever possible. It's incarnate. It's my city. I want to be an active citizen in the life of our city. I want to walk and bike more and drive less. I want to treat whatever job that I have not as a temporary thing that I'm doing until I get to where I really want to be, but rather as a craft, something to serve others and glorify God by getting a little bit better every day. I want to say I'm going to pray for people a lot less and instead stop and actually pray for people in the moment a lot more. I want to make space in my life for holy interruptions so that I can do ministry like Jesus did, which was intentional, unhurried, and fully present. I want to be holy as Jesus was holy, which was not in a disengaged, disembodied, altogether otherworldly kind of a way, but in a way that is radically engaged with my city and my neighbors and my family and friends. And so, band, if you would come on up here, what we're going to do to close out this morning, uh, as I'm hoping and praying that this bounces around in your heart a little bit, and and as it does, and as we enter into a time of worship, we are going to close in worship, but we're also going to be closing by taking communion together as a church. And and maybe you've been here, like, already, you're just way ahead of me, and you've been feeling this, um, and if so, you're just a lot sharper than I am and ahead of the curve, you know, but this part of this whole like desiring and longing for more for me uh, and longing for more of God is, is I also, I want to do communion more, you know, with my church, with my, my church family and coming around the table, right? And breaking bread and drinking wine and remembering what Jesus did for us. And so we're going to do that. And so if you would, let's go ahead and stand uh, and, and let me pray for you as we go into this time. Lord God, I want to just confess to you 
uh, for so often living an excarnate life, one that is so busy and hurried, uh, being so absent in the moment, so disengaged because I'm so worried about what's coming next. And Jesus, I thank you for showing us a different way and inviting us to a different way. And so, Lord, I, I pray for each one of us in the room. Lord God, that you would be stirring things in our own heart and soul, even now. And as we walk out of here, and as we, as we eat that bread and we drink that wine that is, so, that is representative of what you accomplished us on the cross, a body that you lived in for more than just three years, for 33 years. One in which you lived incarnationally in this world, part of a locale, part of a people, part of a neighborhood, working a job, having friends, showing us what it looks like to live in the midst of culture in order to love and serve and redeem it. Lord God, make us into that kind of people. Come before you now, Lord.